We're in a neat section. Today we focus on verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, a sermon that I've titled, What We Must Avoid. Um, to help set the table, I want to read verse 8, is where we finished last week, and then 9 through 11, remind you of where we left off in Paul's emphasis in verse 8 and how it transitions then to his emphasis in 9 through 11. Look with me at today's text. Titus chapter 3, 8, and then 9 through 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But... Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Those who have believed in God, those who have trusted their lives to Jesus for salvation and to be Lord of their lives, we are to be careful to be devoted, committed, waking up and purposeful to doing good works that glorify God and are for the good of others. That, that's church, Christian, that's the driver of our days. Not to wake up and do what I want, but, but, but to do the good things that honor the Lord and, and to choose those things. Our time in verse 1 and 2 and verse 8 last week gave us great detailed examples of ways that we who belong to Christ are devoted to good works. So now next, in today's passage, Paul turns to highlight the kinds of things we are to avoid. So the things we are to do last week, the good works, and then this week, you know, that are profitable, for those around us. And then now this week, the things we are to avoid that are, that are not profitable, they're worthless. So bringing warning like this is a good practice for shepherds. And here's Paul, a shepherd, uh, encouraging another shepherd, Titus, to, to, to speak this way to his sheep, um, to help them understand what to avoid. Just like we parents do that with our children. And, and God's word is such a blessing to us in this that it gives us specific warnings of things to avoid. We don't have to guess. Now, while our flesh doesn't often like restrictions on it, our flesh likes to be self-reigned and ruled. We must never forget, beloved, that warnings are for our good. An illustration I've shared over the years I believe is helpful to embrace warnings is, uh, let's say you are in route for a, a long-anticipated special day at the beach with your family. It's not blazing hot yet, so you have to remember what that's like. I know we're enjoying some cool days right now, but it's coming. The sun is out, the water looks so refreshing from the highway as you drive to the beach. You get down to the area that you're gonna set up your family's 
blanket and umbrella and packed lunch. The kids can't wait to go get in the water. And, and what do you see before you? A big sign that says, danger, swim at your own risk, sharks in the water. And so the question is, as parents, do you let them swim? And I, I know your answer already, so why not? I mean, sharks have been in the ocean as long as the ocean has been. This is not new, right? Maybe you self-reason, you think, well, I've never been bit by a shark, I'm pretty old, and I've swam in the ocean a lot. So they'll be fine, the odds are with them. The problem is the sign seems to imply that sharks are more present in these waters, right there, in this spot, than in all the other places of the ocean or in the past. So it changes things. It's a particular warning. And so therefore you don't risk it. And the kids don't swim that day. You eat your sandwiches, you make your sandcastles, you have fun. Was your day a total bust? No. You got out of the Bakersfield summer heat. You enjoyed a fun day at the beach. Do you blame the sign for the fact that your day didn't go as planned? No. Why? Because it was a help to you. That sign might have literally saved your kids' lives that day. Right? You don't know what lingers under the water. And so you're thankful for a helpful warning. Church, this is why God's word is such a blessing to us in this. It helps us to see sin so that we can turn from it in faith and honor God with our days and not honor ourselves, right? To not reason like the old man or like a fleshly man. We cherish what God ordained Paul to share with Titus as the things that Christians should avoid in our time in ministry in this sin-filled world. And so with that, let's dive into verse 9. Count it a blessing to have warnings like this. Paul says to Titus, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Let's start there. Paul's emphasis that God's people should avoid people promoting these things is not necessarily to outright avoid them altogether, at least not at first, but it is a first clarity to avoid engaging them on their terms. Paul's emphasis is that we do not get caught up in unprofitable or worthless babble or argumentation, perhaps to things that are not true or honoring to the Lord. So there's a discernment. As we've seen, there are many on the island of Crete where Titus is shepherding God's flock who proclaim to be to belong to the Lord, but they served unbiblical or anti-gospel agendas. This is why Paul left Titus in Crete, so that he might put what remained of the faithful into order, right? Different than those who proved to be unfaithful put it in order and appoint more elders who must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. For there were many who, who proved to be insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
that they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. If you remember, church, this was Paul's words to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5 and 9 through 11. We who belong to Christ surely need to be interacting with those who are deceived, with those who are lost, with those who are enslaved to sin. But we need to engage them in a way whereby we control the narrative so that the interaction points towards the light and the truths of the Lord and not towards the darkness and the deception of the enemy. This can be a tricky line to walk and in some cases will require discipline. With those who once claimed to be part of the church, whereby the last steps with them may mean having nothing to do with them. Discipline to that degree. Or with those who don't belong to Christ at all, and thereby redefining maybe the closeness of your relationship with them. Paul says the people of God are to first avoid foolish controversies. Remember with me that foolishness is not a lack of education. It's about rejecting truth. It's about seeing or knowing the right way and then turning to the wrong way. That's foolish. Many of the most educated, brilliant minds of society are utterly foolish, for they know the one true God, but they choose in their sin and rebellion to reject him. Lost or deceived people will often use controversies that are contrived, that is, they're not built in truth, simply to get people focused on something other than the truth. This is a deception. A huge win for the enemy if he can get God's people focused on untruthful controversies. Spinning our wheels in these things. To get us focused on arguing that the earth is not flat instead of promoting the life-changing gospel of our Lord, for example. Church, see with me that one of the biggest ways opponents to God and opponents to his absolute truth will use trickery or deception to simply get Christians distracted, to get you wasting time arguing about foolish or even non-existent things. So there's a discipline that we must exercise as soldiers for Jesus who have been saved and called to the battlefield. That is to not waste time on foolish things that are contrived and not even real. This is why Paul says we are to avoid these things. Soldier, stay focused on the battlefield. Don't let the enemy get you distracted with foolish controversies. Now, this may seem minor, but that's just it. That's the best kind of deception. It's not something that is major and therefore waving a big flag, 
but something very minor. And it just has one twinge of mistruth connected to it. And therein lies deception. Our enemy loves to use minor things to divert us from being effective and focused. Listen to Paul's constant warning about these things in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, I urge you when I was going through Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Later, in his second letter, 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that breed quarrels. I think, church, there's something we need to be careful to do. The flesh wants to be on the cutting edge of what's coming. We want to be in the know. We, we don't want to find out about something too late. And so we work to find the angles and, and, and to consider the controversies and to see what maybe they're not telling us. And so we investigate and we, and we talk and we banter and we spend time. Church, See it with me how opposite that whole thing is than to walk by faith in the Lord, to trust him, to trust that he's on the throne. And yes, the world is going to act in offensive ways. They're going to not play by the rules. Our objective, though, is not to outlast them with some kind of survival techniques. It's to be faithful with the gospel until he takes us home. And so to trust God's truths and to walk by those truths is an important commitment that we make. A simple way to think about this is when we're arguing, we're not advancing, right? We're not playing the game. We're arguing. We're on the sidelines. We're stalled out, we're stuck, we're ineffective. Paul's reference next beyond foolish controversies is to reference genealogies. This is most likely a reference to the way the Jews in particular and others recounted historical past and then how they promoted priorities or stories or happenings of their heritage that were just not biblical. So things may be more linked linked to the, the telling of stories from generations gone by or, or to tradition. Genealogy stood in contrast to the orthodox teachings of God's written word or the teachings of the apostles of Jesus. In our modern day, it would be those who want to stand up and promote and fight for the traditions of the church, for they have become more meaningful to you more important, so you elevate them to be of equal importance to God's authoritative word, or maybe even more of more importance to you than what God's word clearly says. 
the authority that should pave our way should not be the stories of old, but first and foremost, the revelation of God in Holy Scripture. And the stories of old that he gives us to know and to believe as his word, that that's our first authority, our greatest authority. Next, Paul says that God's people are to avoid dissensions. The, the Greek word Paul uses here means strife, to avoid strife, to avoid contention with each other. It is when people allow themselves to devalue unity. Church, don't take unity lightly. It's something to protect. It's something to fight for. Especially the precious unity of Christ that he died to give us in our salvation. See, our sin loves to think about, to fight for, to value oneself. This is what I want. I don't care about you. That's the work of the sin of the flesh, right? But Christ in us brings about a heart and mind that loves and fights for each other. That's more important. Our unity in Christ is a precious thing. It is something we defend with a passionate vigor, the same way that a mother bear looks to defend her cub or a wife aims to defend her husband. We who are in the body of Christ need to fight to defend our unity. We need to be aware of the many ways the enemy wants to divide us. And recognize, church, he works tirelessly to cause strife, to promote dissension among us. If you've been in the church for a while, you've surely seen this happen. A person or a family or maybe a group of families or people start complaining. They start becoming more and more critical. They start whispering in their home dissension, distaste for others in Christ's body. And this promotes dissension. It feeds strife. It doesn't make every effort for unity, as Scripture calls us to have. It doesn't protect the precious family God has bought us into. It puts away gratitude for all that God has done in us as an individual or as a family by His grace and His long-suffering, the long-suffering through the ministry of the local church. And then it exchanges that gratitude for picking up disgruntledness. To become consumed with thinking and talking that breeds a desire to pull away instead of to lean in. I, I know you've seen this. And likely, if you've been doing this a while, it's something you've been caught up in along the way at some point. Church, it is what Paul is warning Titus to be clear to speak to the saints. Avoid dissensions. Avoid strife that promotes criticism and separation. Avoid it. Walk away from those conversations. Call out brothers and sisters who are breeding strife. Another way this is happening in our modern day is online. People are spending time, Christians are spending time viewing 
things because they have access to it. One of the things that Christians are viewing is the videos of deconstructionalists. Those are people who once claimed faith in Jesus, but no longer practice such faith. They've denied the faith. They've deconstructed the walls of faith that they once lived in, thrived in, were sanctified in. They, they then look to embrace groups of people who look like them. And, and then they start their own movements, their own quote-unquote churches or house churches. This is a wildly effective tactic for Satan to use to break down the local church, to breed distrust of sheep to each other, to their qualified elders and shepherds, to keep saints attending, but not serving or investing or being involved in disciple making. I pray, church, that we can identify dissension and strife so that we can avoid it, call it out, and shun it properly. Another layer of this kind of practice is quarreling about the law of God. Paul says that we are to avoid quarrels about the law. Certainly in that day, the rise of Christ's teachings, followed by the apostles' teaching, the New Covenant Church, was challenging, especially for the Jews, the long-standing Old Covenant people of God, those who really held strongly to the law of Moses for generations. But there was also something that happened then that still happens today, and that's when people debate about their own held beliefs in ways that stand in opposition to God's written word or make major things of what really is minor things, cause separation, uh, to, to make what is really secondary and call it primary and then use it to divide. The pride of man is so potent and will cause many to fight or fight for something unto death, unto division. That, that's just simply beyond what Scripture makes clear. Paul spoke of these in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 6-7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Church, don't, don't hear me wrong. We are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Okay, We are to testify of the truths. We are to engage in apologetics. We are to, to be a witness. But we are not to get caught up in never-ending debates and quarrels with people who stand against God's truths. Sadly, there are people who devote their, such, their whole lives to this kind of quarreling, uh, especially, again, with the modern-day ability to do this online, to sit lazily behind a computer or on a phone and just burn time just arguing with people. It saddens me when I even see other pastors doing this, 
spending time doing this instead of devoting their time to tending to their sheep. Instead, they're online arguing with internet trolls for hours and days, quarreling about the law. Church, we need to heed what Paul is saying about these things. He says they are unprofitable. They are worthless. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, they are not helpful to do the very thing the Lord has called us to do, which is to testify the gospel of our Lord and to make disciples unto the nations. It's unprofitable. Unprofitable is the opposite of the good deeds we are encouraged to be prioritizing, which are profitable, as we saw in verse 8. Worthless is to strengthen Paul's point. He says they're unprofitable and worthless. He's trying to drive home the seriousness of this. We who belong to Christ are to be good stewards of our days and to no longer engage in practices that are worthless, that are meaningless. The synonyms for this word are empty, vain, futile. Let me remind you, Paul's words to the Ephesians, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due their hardness of heart. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Church, we must not walk as we used to when we were dead in sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Constantly, we are encouraged to not pick up the playbook of the old self who was enslaved to sin and absent in faith. There's a great purpose for our days now in Christ. So, so let's not engage or get caught up in trivial or worthless things that are unprofitable for advancing the gospel and making much of our Lord. There's a discipline here. Now the problem is that there will still arise some from among those who claim Christ, sometimes from those in our very church body, who will stir up division, controversy, complaint that breaks down the unity of the saints, causes distrust, discord among us. We must not forget Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 30. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. It's a sad reality, but one we must be prepared to avoid ourselves or to deal with if involving others we know. So Paul blesses Titus with clear counsel regarding this in verse 10. Look with me. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In our flesh and laziness, sometimes we just want to run to the end. But there is a patient journey here that's important. 
First, a person who stirs up division. The important clarity here to understand is that the division that's being promoted or stirred up is not heresy. That's not the emphasis here. Heresy must be dealt with swiftly and completely for it's damnable. It's impact on those who would believe it, right? Heresy is a false belief or false doctrine that goes against scripture, usually leading to destruction, to damnation. So there's a swiftness in dealing with heresy. Such an error or offense to God, it causes someone to believe in another God, in another gospel. But there's another kind of false belief or sinful practice that many of us can get caught up in that's more simply understood as error. Error is false belief or doctrine that goes against Scripture but not leading to destruction. While error is still serious and needing to be addressed, confessed, and repented of, it doesn't require the same measure of address or swiftness that heresy does. Therein lies the prescription in Scripture when dealing with error that we saints have a measure of patience with each other. There's a process. There's, there's a walking with. So when Paul mentions those who are stirring division need to see their errors promoting or causing fractions among God's people, most of the time, the matter at hand is an overinflation of one's opinion or preference or feelings on a matter. That's what's really being struggled with here. I'm not doing well to embrace what God says this should look like. I'm embracing how I feel about it or what I think about it, and it's causing some error and therefore breeding division. Letting something become too major, letting something become too personal, and then it's breeding a discontentment and a disgruntledness that affects a person's mind and heart, and then often those who will give them ear. A belief or ideology or opinion that causes a person or a smaller group of people to hold so firmly, they eventually separate themselves from the larger community. It's a stirring of factionalism, of, of divisiveness. And it's amazing how polluting and harmful it is to God's people. It's harmful. It's harmful first for the person who's allowing it to happen to themselves. It's harmful to their own family or the small group of people around them who are buying into it. And, and what we often see, and it's so hard to see it, is, is then they think, oh, we're just gonna step away quietly. But their fraction, their division, it still impacts their testimony. It still affects how others are perceiving what it means to be saved, what it means to really belong to Jesus and to his blood-bought family in a true and lasting way. It doesn't promote the work of the Spirit that overcomes the flesh and fights to keep the unity of Christ that he's bought for us. Instead, it promotes individualism. And sooner than later, that just quickly starts to look like lost people who are really focused on themselves and just doing what they want to do. Church, division among the church is a serious thing. Distrust of others that creates distance is like an infection 
It might not cause immediate problems, but it slowly eats away at the body and creates something that at a minimum is not healthy and thriving, but at worst is something very sick, very broken, very infected. What a win for the enemy this is. To get the redeemed people of God to erode the local church in little and yet effective ways. This is why Paul drives this point home. And again in his letters, one of my favorites is Ephesians 4.3. Paul says that we who belong to Christ, hear this, must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The word eager here, more fully translated, is to make every effort. To not think about making effort, to not kind of make some effort, to not try once and then give up, to make every effort. To be diligent. This implies urgency. It implies making haste. To maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's not about me being right. It's not about me being vindicated. It's about us being properly united. We're going to be different. We're going to disagree. We may not want to all run together closely like we once did or, or, or always will. That's okay. We're still united in Christ. That's still more important than all the rest. This is Paul's point in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, church, we are one. What once divided us has been paid for and removed so that we who are in Christ are truly united, even though we still might be different in many ways, in our ethnicity, gender, having different socioeconomic status. But we're one because of the will of God, the work of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is good news, Christian. Do you, do you see and savor who you are in Christ? And what you've been given? Can I just say this? If you don't, quote-unquote, feel united, or included, or invited, that doesn't mean you're not. You are united because, not because of anything you've done, or not because of anything anyone else has done or not done. You are united because of what Christ has done. Amen? And it is finished. Make every effort to maintain the unity. So when a brother or sister calls out and says, hey, let's fight for unity. Let's practice forgiveness. Let's, let's pursue Christ together. Christian, you don't get to say no. I'm not going to meet with you. That's another Christian. Right? You don't need to, you know, be in the same bowling league as them. That's okay. That's fine. Right? You, you, don't, you don't have to, you know, go to the same park that they like to go to. Whatever. There has to be real unity in Christ. 
This testimony is huge. It is a major part of how the Lord wants the gospel to be on display in our lost world. It is so essential that we take it seriously. Paul's words to the Romans, chapter 12, 4 through 5, just as our bodies have many parts and each part is special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of his one body and each of us has a different work to do. And since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other and each of us needs the others. We need each other, church. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there's no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. How important is unity and peace to God among us who, who are his? It's important. He says it's not okay to sweep it under the rug, pretend that everything's okay, and then bring God your worship. He's saying your life is not an offering of authentic worship if you're purposely avoiding the very things that he calls us to, the very practices of fighting for unity. Our call to keep our unity, to fight for it, to push back fleshly feelings or disgruntledness, to love each other and honor each other in Christ's power is such an important part of our daily ministry and witness. Therefore, a person stirring division must be lovingly confronted and warned. Look with me. As for a person who stirs up division, they do the opposite of fighting for unity. They stir division, promote it. It says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Let's break this down. The action of warning, of warning is admonishment. It's calling out the error. It's calling the one who's perpetuating the sin back to what honors the Lord. The fact that this is done once and then twice is to highlight the fact that any of us can get caught up in these kinds of things. And we'll need to be rebuked. We'll need to be warned, admonished. Stuff where we need our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ and our shepherds to love us enough to call us out. To admonish us, to discipline us. This was Paul's emphasis earlier in this very letter. Titus 2.15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. To rebuke is to admonish, to correct, convict, confront error. Our modern world's agenda says, leave each other to each his own. 
And we can buy into that. Hey, you know what? I'm good. I'll do me. You do you. We who belong to Christ, we, we serve his order. We serve his agenda. It is loving and right to point out the errors or sinful ways of another. It's loving to point them to truth. To point them to the light. To call them from the muck and the mire into forgiveness and freedom and righteousness. God's word is clear that we are commanded to do this in love for each other. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christian, if you're struggling with any of this, let's evaluate the foundation. Is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone has caught any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Can I point out that gentleness is not necessarily related to the words or directness of the admonishment. Sometimes in our... Uh, hyper feelings culture we want to say ah, i don't your admonishment doesn't feel gentle discipline is not necessarily meant to feel gentle but it is to be gentle and, and in this frame we get to see some of what that is that 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 it's done with some patience this is why paul says to titus warn him once and then again, right? That's not the, a harsh swipe. There, there's, there's a patient walking there that has a, a gentleness attached to it. Again, it's to recognize any of us can get caught up. I very well may need that very same pace and help for me by you. Paul warns of this in the next part of that very verse. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness to bring rebuke and warning and correction and help in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, he continues, lest you too be tempted. It's a very global point in Scripture that, that we're always careful not to be looking down on someone else. Like, I've figured all this out and got to help you gutter rat. No, the constant thing is be, be mindful of what's in your own eye. Be, be aware of the fact that you too could get caught up in these very things. Bringing admonishment with a warning once and twice is how we who belong to Christ fight for each other. How we walk with each other in the long race. In counsel, the, the thing that I often try to help us with is... is in that disagreement to, to work way less towards you being right, you being heard, you being vindicated, fighting for you, and be way more concerned with us. I wanna get us to a place where we are honoring the Lord. That's what I'm working for here. 
And when you both do that, it's going to go well. Church Jesus himself gave prescription to how his people are to walk out Christian accountability and church discipline. Matthew 18. You know it, but let me reference it quickly. It lines up well with what Paul is telling Titus in our passage today. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Jesus says, show him his fault. Raise your hand. Point it out. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Talk it out. Pursue the Lord together. Some of us just need to start right there. We're so quick to pick up the phone and talk to everyone else. Let's call our brother. Hey, is this what's going on here? This is how this, this is how this, how I'm perceiving this. Is that what's happening here? Can we pursue Christ together? Bring him the warning. That's essentially what this first step is. Bring the admonishment, bring the rebuke. Point it out. Be forthright. Practice honesty. Don't beat around the bush. Sometimes it's typical, it's difficult to be straightforward, tell someone the heart of the matter, but it's good biblical admonishment. God honoring restoration of repentance can only come when the issues are lovingly and clearly dealt with. Okay? And when someone's calling you to say, hey, let's do this, then you need to make every effort to do this. Don't forget the wise words of Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than kisses from an enemy. Jesus says next, if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Praise the Lord. Many problems are resolved right there between you and, and the other person. Forgiveness, restoration should be the expected conclusion if I'm trying to die to self and live to Christ. But what if the individual won't hear you? They openly disagree with what you say. They're not interested in being corrected. Then Paul says, warn them again. Jesus says, if you will not listen, take one or two others along. So they, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the second warning. There's a step, another step. The prayers of the Holy Spirit brings genuine conviction of sin, awareness of selfishness, of, uh, awareness of how I'm trying to be right in my own eyes. To, to be, bring help to make war with jaded emotions and feelings unto true repentance that honors the Lord. In Matthew 18, there's a third step of involving leadership in the entirety of the church. And then, if they still do not repent, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen, even in the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat him essentially as an unbeliever. Paul says to Titus in our verse, have nothing more to do with him. Why such a swift and serious disfellowship? Because of the seriousness, church, of the gospel testimony God has given us to steward in these days. The person is removed. The church is told of their unrepentant sin because their lack of repentance is not testifying the truth of the gospel and or maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. This is a major part of how we do what God calls us to do. Understand with me, there's no such thing as disunity in the body of Christ. 
we are one in Christ. If we are not one, if someone is not united, then they are to be treated as not a part of the body of Christ. Why? Because there is no disunity in the body. There is no such thing as unrepentant sin in the body of Christ. If you belong to Christ, you will be united to the body of Christ. If you belong to Christ, you will repent of sin that you fall into. That's the power of God at work within you. Paul clarifies this point, Titus 3.11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Why is you'd have nothing to do with them after walking out a road of, of efforted admonishment unto repentance? Because their testimony is proving that the Lord is not the Lord of their lives. They are. And so therefore to walk in unity with them and call them a brother and continue to walk the road together is to then be part of a testimony to the world and to other believers this is what gospel life looks like. This is what Jesus as Lord of your life looks like. When it's not, that's to participate in a lie. And that cannot be. The faith they're professing is proving to be superficial or not actual. Or actual faith in Christ will mean a real dying to self and living to Christ. It will mean when we're shown our sin, that we hate our sin. And we'll make every effort to turn from it and sin no more. Even if that's going to be really hard, even if that's going to cost me a lot, Christ is more. Christ is able. It doesn't mean I make excuses for it. It doesn't mean that I take my time with it or I continue to make a bed for it. No, we slay it. We dump out the drawer, church, to find every God-given tool to confront it and kill it and be done with it. We invite whoever we can to the table to help us fight it, to abide in Christ, to not make excuses. We, we don't hold our fleshly reasoning or longings. Instead, we fight for what honors the Lord. So Paul is highlighting here that those who do not repent after help and patience and time prove to be warped. They prove to be in their sin. They prove to be self-condemned. By God's grace, sometimes those who were disfellowship with, they, they needed to see a deeper part of the bottom of the boat. And in their being separated from the church, the Lord brings them to repentance. And if and when that happens, we celebrate that repentance. Praise the Lord. It's those who don't prove to, as Scripture says, have never been of us. If they prove to be warped and sinful and self-condemned, this is why Jesus says too, we are to treat them as an unbeliever and to disfellowship with them. To continue to embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ, to promote a testimony of the gospel, it's simply not true. 
It's to say you can be saved by Jesus, but not be surrendered to Jesus as Lord. It's, and this simply cannot be. It is to lie to everyone you're testifying to, and therefore, what then is even the point of the church, of the testimony, of our gospel ministry? Listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Amen. What a privilege and a joy it is to be reconciled to the holy God through the blood of the lamb. Jesus died to atone for our sin, to take on the wrath due our sin. He did this so that we could be forgiven and empowered to live lives that honor God, that practice good deeds and avoid the sin and error of the flesh in this fallen world. Christian, if conviction is upon you today to reveal that you have rejected some good deeds and have instead taken up some of these other things, then say thank you to God for his word and act upon it in the humility of Christ, right? Knock over the prideful man that wants to stand up and double down. For this is beautiful, to be humble, to confess, to repent, to honor the Lord, whatever it might mean. May we abide, church, in the only one who truly satisfies, the only one who provides the power and will that we need to honor God. May we be diligent to heed these wise words of God for us today and put them to work for his eternal glory and others' eternal good. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, um, the joy it is to spend this time together in it to, uh, to have this letter from Paul to Titus, to have what you ordain to be your word, your counsel, your revelation for us, to know it, to understand it. And I pray, Lord, to apply it, not in self-righteousness, but in humility, in, in gratitude, in the joy of the Lord, in the desire to honor you, in, a, in an effort to really show love to others, to fight for what you've given us in Christ. Oh God, we need you. We at the helm every day that we would well up with genuine worship for you, lives that honor you. Take us forth. Do your work in us for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.